Hiya and welcome to the Phil Hay Show, the weekly collaboration podcast between The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan and I'm joined by The Athletic's Phil Hay. Hello. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. And Daniel Chapman, a.k.a. Moscow White. Hello. Bet365 sponsors our podcast and features over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you'll need ever to bet on sports and their app lets you access pre-match and in-play markets and provides instant match updates. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company and the app can be downloaded right now from the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only though. Please gamble responsibly. Well, Phil, how are you feeling right now? Because we are hitting the record button straight after that press conference at Thorpe Arch. Before we get into the content of, of what he said, just describe the atmosphere in that room today for us. Well, there was a journalist up there, Matt Dickinson, who's a very good writer from The Times. It's the first time he's ever been to Bielsa Press Conference. And he, he said to me beforehand, these can be quite interesting, can't they? And I said, well, yeah, and, and it depends very much the mood that Bielsa turns up in. If he's, um, if he's ready for a bit of a fight, there'll be like nothing you've, you've ever seen. If, if he doesn't have much to say for himself, he can actually be out of these in, in 14 minutes. And and to be honest, if I owned the bookmakers and had some interest from Leeds, I think I would start running books on how long his presses are going to go for over or under 45 minutes. And this was this was an hour, hours epic today. And at the end of it, Matt turned to me and he said, I feel absolutely exhausted after that, after a, an hour of, of listening to him. And, and it was him who asked the last question and, and he just kind of said, bless him, said I'm sort of feeling a lot of pressure in the room. You know, I said, I'm sitting here. I don't often come to these press conferences. You know, I'm not used to hearing you speak, but as an observer and, and you know, the, the way I read it, it seems like there's a, a lot of pressure on, which Bielsa denied. And he said, no, I'm not feeling any pressure. I just putting a lot of energy into my communication and I want the fans to know what it is that I'm thinking, how I feel, and I want them to know what my opinions are on, on various things. But it was very, very apparent. Two things really I thought from the press conference today. The first is how aware he is of the debate or the various debates that are going on about certain issues like for example Augustine and why Augustine wasn't in the squad at the weekend why he didn't feature at all in either of the two games last week his awareness of kind of growing public doubt and concern I guess about the results and that fear that always creeps in from time to time at Leeds when when things turn for the worse and also just the way in which he seems to be feeling it and it does seem to be getting to him and, and the way in which he feels like he has to have his say about these things and he, and he wants to, even if you're not asking him questions specifically about, you know, the various problems as we see it or the, the slight weaknesses in the team, he knows we're talking about it. He knows people are talking about it and he, he very, very much wants to let you know what's what's on his mind and what's in his head. Why do you think he's so tuned into that? Where does he get that from? Is it because he reads? Because you have mentioned in the past a, a scrapbook of all the stuff that you wrote in the past, the keeping articles in the, in the YEP and... Yeah, presumably the other stuff that you're writing. My initial impression of Bielsa, although I was never quite sure whether I believed this, was that he took virtually no interest in the media at all, or at least he took no interest beyond having to joust with them at press conferences, and certainly didn't do one-on-one interviews, and very you know made made a sort of conscious effort not to put himself in the the media gaze beyond actually being on the touchline and managing the teams that that he managed. But I said previously that someone told me that he that last season he was cutting out everything that I was writing about him and and having it translated to him from the Evening Post. Poor sod and. He's clearly on top of everything that's being discussed. And he knows that in the past week, you can tell from his body language and, and from, from the way he's speaking, he knows that there's been a load of discussion in the past week about why it is that this 
former PSG academy player who cost Leipzig 30 million euros and is seen as a potentially a very, very good striker. Couldn't make the bench at the weekend against Wigan. He knows that people are asking why it is that when he gives so many 23s debuts and gives them a chance that Edmondson cannot get in the team, cannot even get on the bench, doesn't look like he's a player that Bielsa fancies. He, he can tell that people are starting to question his lack of flexibility in, in tactics is, is kind of persistence with his, his own philosophy and I think I think he's feeling a bit got at to be perfectly honest I think he is feeling that he that he needs to fight his corner over these things and I've got to say I do think that the Eddie Nketiah situation has got to him in a way that I would never have expected with him we're six weeks on from Nketiah leaving and he cannot stop talking about why it was that Nketiah didn't feature as much why it was that he feels hard done to with Arsenal recalling him and, and why why he feels that the narrative around Niketia and and you know Bielsa not giving him perhaps as, as many games or as much of a chance as he should have had is a bit unfair. It's all there, it's all in his head and, and this was another of those presses where he needed to let it all spill out. It's interesting, isn't it? And it's I guess, rolls forward into the question about Augustine. And um, we've had a question coming from Matthew as well on the WhatsApp number, which I will share with you in just a second or two. And it's, it's the one that's on everybody's lips. Why is Bielsa so stubborn when integrating new players into the first team because obviously you've got the two big January signings Perveda and Augusta haven't been involved at all especially against the Wigan which was a week after both of them had signed uh, you look at other clubs like Birmingham playing Hogan a couple of days after he joins them from Villa he scores you've got numerous other examples of that happening over the weekend I don't get why Bielsa in such a stale performance would not even seemingly consider bringing on Perveda or even put Augustine in the squad because it's been clear since Nketi has left that we've missed that different option when Bamford's having a bad game. And it's it's worrying that we might not even see them against Forest, Brentford. Like, how long do you think it will be before we see either of the two January signings involved? Because it can't go on. That's clearly been part of the uh, recent slumping form. We haven't had the same options we did two months ago I think that's a very fair question but he also said to us at the end after Matt Dickinson asked that question about pressure and he got on to talking about how press conferences are his way of communicating properly with the with the support he was saying to us that he doesn't feel that journalists ever challenge him and ever tell him that he's wrong they merely tell the and it's not just the, the case with him they, they merely tell the public that he's wrong when they either report his, his quotes or they or they reflect what's gone on in match reports and, and so on I mean I don't think it is necessarily our place to tell him that he's wrong you're just there to ask questions and to question aspects of what go on but I do think that the kind of reasonable attitude that if Augustine is on the bench and there are 10 minutes to go against Wigan and you're 1-0 down it, it is got to be more advantageous than Augustine training on his own on Saturday morning up at Thorpe Arch and having no involvement at all and that was pretty much where it all started today he was asked fairly you know innocuous question about when will Augustine be fit enough or ready enough to be involved in the squad and he took that his famous phrase of that's not an innocent question he took that to mean why are you not playing him when you when you should be or what what rationale is there for not involving him straight away and it comes back to the same old argument with Bielsa that he will only use and and play players when he thinks they're physically ready and mentally ready 
And by that, he means getting up to the standards he sets, which, as we know, are very, very high on on both fronts. And the implication was that Augustine is not quite there. He spoke about Augustine playing only three full games in eight months and he hasn't played a lot for Monaco and he didn't play a huge amount for Leipzig in, in his second season there. And he probably does need to get up to speed. And he said, Augustine said that himself in his first press conference last week. But it was more than that. Rather than Bielsa just saying, look, I need to pick the right time for him um, and, and I need to find the, the point at which he will be 100% good to go. He almost felt, or you got the impression of him fighting back against criticism of him for not doing to not putting him in the squad on Saturday or perceived criticism of the fact that he, he wasn't involved and the long and short of it was really I'm head coach I'll decide when he's right and when I think he's right he'll he'll be involved which is how we got on to talking about Edmondson who Bielsa said had, had not really impressed him in 23's games and hence hadn't been involved but actually as Sod's Law would have it was very impressive in the training session where he injured his knee and needed to go for an operation and is now out for, for two months and likewise with Nketiah he's trying to suggest that Nketiah was ready at the point at which he started against Birmingham and West Brom over the, the new year period which was also the period at which Arsenal had decided that he was going to be recalled, so in, in a lot of ways was was pointless. And we were getting name checks for Jack Clark, who he thought had his best under-23s performance right before he, he went back to Spurs. He said he messaged Clark to say, that is more like the level that I saw you at when you were at your best last season. And there was even a name check in there for Lewis Baker, who most of us have pretty much forgotten about, gone and, and forgotten. And the same sort of thing, really, to, to imply that Baker had got to the point where actually he might have been easier to consider and easier to select and at that moment Chelsea decided that no we'll recall him and take him back because he's hardly been been playing so there was a lot of resistance and a lot of kickback against I think what he sees as criticism of his his management of players and I do think that Niketia and the kind of the impression, impression Arsenal have given that they weren't happy about the way Nketi was managed, they didn't feel in some ways that Leeds had held up their side of the bargain and, and used him enough. I think that has got to him. I think it has annoyed him and he cannot let that one go. You mentioned there about him being physically ready and mentally ready. Michael and Moscow, I mean, from a fan's perspective, haven't we seen at the weekend that the rest of the team looks like it's mentally ready to have something new added to it? I think it's interesting with Augustine, if he's, if he's saying he's away off and there were hints today that he won't feature on the weekend as well and potentially beyond that, why do you think it is that he's not playing full games in the under-23s then? Because to, to cut him short of 45 minutes on Monday, and that was apparently always the plan, I don't know, it feels like if he, he needs to get much, he needs to get as many minutes as he can under his belt in that case. Because like I say, it does feel like the team's crying out for something a bit fresh from the bench. He doesn't look at under-23s minutes, Bielsa, in the way that other people would and a lot of managers. Convention has always been over the years that if you play 90 minutes for the 23s or you play several games for the 23s, it, it kind of builds you up and builds you up and, and you're ready. And it's still it's still essentially true. But the things that Bielsa puts greatest weight on are your body fat levels and your weight and you know the targets you have for all that your, your ability to do the running sessions that that he asks of you and and I said when I went up to Thorpe Arch on the Monday when Augustine signed the first thing he was doing was running round and round the track that Bielsa had installed at, at Thorpe Arch and it was very much a case of welcome to to Bielsa's leads and then of course there are these famous murder ball sessions that they, they play through the week and, and from what I'm told those more than anything are the, the key indicators for Bielsa about whether somebody's ready if they run enough in those games if they're physical enough in those games if they compete enough if they make enough of an impact 
from his point of view, it's box ticked and, and they'll be involved. If they don't, and this was one of the problems for Izzy Brown, again, from, from the way it was told to me, that Izzy Brown didn't impress often enough in those murder ball games. And Bielsa, on that basis, just felt that it wasn't right to use him. And I suspect it'll be the same with, with Augustine. He will play in the 23s because it's a bit of football and it's, it's a few minutes. But there'll be other aspects through the training week that will need to be right before Bielsa decides that, yeah, he can, he can be in the 18. Is there any frustration from higher up in the club, like Victor Arthur, that he's bringing him these players and then not using them, do you think? They would never say so publicly, but I think there are aspects of what Bielsa does that they... It would be wrong to say they don't understand them because they know what he's like and, and it comes with the with the package. You know what Bielsa does. And, and I mean, Leeds has probably been the best example anybody... If, if any other club goes to a point Bielsa further down the line I mean Leeds is perfect example of what you're going to get the sort of quirks and the, the oddities that you wouldn't get with with more standard managers the, the things he's going to do I, I think the club do feel that the the depth of squad he runs with is very light for the championship but again it's what he does and it's what he wants to do and they won't argue with him on that front I think they were aware that you know rather than Edmondson it was probably more likely in the absence of cover for Bamford if Bamford was to get injured or suspended or whatever else he would be more likely to play somebody like Jack Harrison up front because that's just what he does and none of us particularly think Harrison is a nine but Bielsa sees that kind of talent in him if if needs be and and some of it is strange and I think you know somebody once said to me with Bielsa you don't kind of get major and minor problems or things in the middle everything is seriously important and everything is a very very big deal and everything is given a lot of thought and everything is in his head and his philosophy is just what he does and I don't think many people at the club ever argue with him about any of it I think they've taken the attitude from the start that they they pay him a very big salary he's very high profile he's got a lot of experience they, they need to leave him to get on with it and they do but if, for example, you're saying would they have preferred Dizzy Brown to have made more impact last season? Definitely, yes. I think if at times he could have used Nketiah more and avoided the Arsenal recall, definitely yes. And I think if Augustine isn't involved much or as much as people would expect him to be, then then yeah, they will sit and they'll be a bit bemused by it, but they won't do anything about it because it you know it, it's his job and they really have just left him to get on with it. There were some elements today and a, a couple of weeks ago of a little bit of of pragmatism or some some bending of his rules with uh, with Pervader when he has been straight onto the bench. And I think when you listen to the way Bielsa talks about his squad, if you're on the bench, you're in the team. He doesn't make much difference between the first 11 and the five who are on the bench. That's there. He calls them the first 11 as a group, no matter how many there are. So, And he, he talks about that process with us not having the game because of the Millwall match being postponed and saying, well, we had 10 days and we recovered three players Tyler Roberts, Jamie Shackleton and Paveda were three players that used that period to get up to speed. And now Paveda is there, although it's a little bit frustrating that he didn't bring him on to uh, shake things up against Wigan. He's he's there to be used. He's not sitting on the bench for, for no reason. And there was a little bit of that again today with Augustine, where he was saying that he if he gets to 70%, of what he of what he would ideally want him to be, he'll be then good enough to to do the job in the championship. So it's it's not like he's asking for some extreme one hundred percent. He has to arrive in perfect condition. He's saying I need him to get to seventy percent. Which would be realistic. Yeah, yeah. And and I was thinking about it as well. And and the process that Bamford went through when he first arrived and seven million pound striker. You'd think and came our roof up until Bielsa's is coming improving season by season but not really massively impressing anybody and those early games for Bamford were all 
five minutes substitute appearances here, 10 minutes here, and then doing his work in the 23s and the League Cup matches. He was getting four games in the League Cup to get him up to speed. Um, and Augustine is kind of, it is just, it. it's stubbornness is the word that keeps coming up. And it, I don't think it's appropriate for the way Marcelo Bielsa works. He's not doing it out of just kind of spite. Stubbornness carries this, this ability of like trying to ignore good advice. He just has a system and Augustine comes into that system basically at the bottom. And it could be that he, he spends, I mean, it would have been hilarious if uh, Ryan Edmondson had not done his knee and suddenly Augustine's not anywhere to be seen and Ryan Edmondson's on the bench Imagine for the, the first seat. time. In, yeah. For the first time. But it's not unrealistic that if, if Pat Bamford continues to be the best player in Murderball, Augustine just has to sit and watch and bide his time. On but, the contrary, it's highly probable, mm. highly probable that that... that will happen. I mean, I would read into the Paveda situation that Paveda is probably in better physical condition than Augustine as Bielsa sees it and has perhaps been better coached in the sense that he was with City's first team for a long time. So he was there with Guardiola and he'll have had a lot of the same kind of schooling that Bielsa would would like them to have. And Augustine, perhaps not so much at Monaco and hasn't played a great deal. They changed manager um, in December and, uh, you know, I I don't think I've had a great season and and he hasn't featured You get the sense he's kind of just lost his way completely almost, don't you? Yeah, and and that's what Bielsa was trying to say today. It was, if if this guy was 100%, if he was absolutely at his peak, then there is simply no way that he would be at Leeds United. He'd be somewhere else and somebody else would have paid a lot of money for him and he'd have been completely out of our league. And the 70% thing is, is... is relevant because I think I think it is Bielsa's way of trying to say I'm I'm not asking this guy to be perfect. I'm not asking him to be the best of the best. He just needs to be good enough in my eyes to merit a place in in the team. But you're right about Bamford. If Bamford carries on playing as Bielsa wants him to and and doing what he's asking and, and chipping in with goals here and there, he'll continue to play. And I don't see a scenario where Bielsa moves permanently or even for a sustained period of time to two up front or a, a system where Augustine and Bamford can can both get in the team and yeah it's just it, the stubbornness it's a kind of strange definition of it with Bielsa it's not stubborn in the sense of trying to put people's noses out of joint and specifically not playing Augustine because people are clamouring for it and the more people clamour for it the more he tries to resist doing it I think it's it's more just that what conventional managers would do in these situations i.e. have Augustine on the bench and have him there for 10 minutes against Wigan if if you need him Bielsa just doesn't countenance and, and people do find that difficult to understand and I think he has to accept that people find that difficult to understand because it is a it is odd when all of January was spent talking about the need for a secondary striker to, to come in but you can't pretend that Augustine's played a lot of football recently and it has to be said that none of us see what he's see the condition he's in or, or what he's up to at Thorpe Arch the, uh, the under-23s was kind of a Exposed some of that. I mean, Michael went to see them at, at Sheffield Wednesday on Monday, and I think most people who watched that thought, "Oh, actually, yeah, we can probably see what Bielsa is saying. He's, he's not in very good shape." And I think Biel, what Bielsa is trying to get across is that ten minutes against Wigan, he could have come on and he either scores or he doesn't, um, and it's a toss up. And he he could have done equally the last ten minutes against Wigan. Bamford could have scored three. Any of those chances could have hit his knee and gone in. So it's kind of a there's not much to choose from his point of view, and then. But then if you're thinking about the the however many 16, 17, 18, 18 games we've got to go, to have Augustine in better condition for a game six games from now, it's better for him to spend his Saturday working, training, running laps at Thorpe Arch, doing whatever fitness work he is to get himself in that condition rather than 
sitting on the bench in the cold at Elland Road, coming on for 10 minutes, not affecting the game, coming off, going through that whole process when I think he's looking at what's going to have the biggest impact on his personal chart to get him a better player for Leeds United later. And we should have beaten Wigan anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And to go back to what you said about you know Bamford not playing when he first came in because Roof was there. The key aspect there was that Roof had had all of pre-season. So he'd been trained by Bielsa right from the, the end of June through to the start of the season in August. And it looked good, you know, it had fitted in well. But more to the point, knew what Bielsa wanted, knew how they played. And Bielsa's attitude was that Bamford coming in had no idea, you know, had no idea plenty of idea about the, the basics of football and, and you know, the, the general requirements, but not the specifics of what Bielsa was looking for. So Roof starts, Bamford's on the bench and that's just how it was. And the reason that that argument's easier to make then is because you've got 46 games in, in front of you. The, the difficulty you have now is that you're trying to, you said there, you know, if, if Augustine takes six games to, to come in and do well, then it's, you know, it's better for him than than coming on and, and not making much of an impression. But that does kind of depend on the six games in the meantime going well because they're at such an advanced stage of the season. And I just think it's symptomatic of the whole thing of, of underlying tension at Leeds now that the results have turned and it's there is no breathing space left. And, and this is a, a critical week, critical weekend coming up of Forest away and, and Brentford away. And Bielsa says he's not feeling the pressure, but he must be feeling some. And the players must be feeling I'd some. Maybe just underline on the Augustine's thing that the argument is you might take six games to get up to speed, but Bielsa thinks it'll take six if he's sitting on the bench against Wigan. But if he's training that day, it might take only five games mm. to get him to the... So in his yeah. mind, he thinks he's getting the, the the player at his best level sooner than if he was on the bench as a in worse condition. So he and he has that approach and he's not going to... I mean, he's not going to shift from it as we I think we saw in his, his expression today. Absolutely. Well, it's a question actually that got posed by... Um, by Mike in Castleford, uh, who's followed by Kieran as well, about these upcoming games, Forest and Brentford. What do you think would be a reasonable return from these next two games? I mean, obviously we'd all want a miracle and six points, but would two points, a point in each match, be the worst thing that ever happened, considering the, the form of the two teams we're going to be playing? And secondly, do you think it's a time for a little bit of a rejig in the team? Thanks, cheers. Now then, gentlemen, I see this next two games against Forest and Brentford is crucial for our season. Lose these two, and I think we're going to have to settle for playoffs again. Win these two, or get four points out of the two games, I think we can do it. What's your views on it? Cheers, lads. He's not going to change, is he? Not significantly, no. The, the rejig won't happen, you don't think? I don't. If you remember after the Wigan game, he, he said something on the lines of it it was impossible for them to score in that game there's simply no way that they should have should have scored and the goal was another debacle that, that Casillas should have kept out and a deflection from a corner there was there was zero creativity involved in that and on that basis you know that actually he won't be disappointed with the performance and, and Bielsa is somebody who is I don't know if, if good is the right word but it is very good at separating results from the way they've played he'll often come in after they after they lose games and they don't lose many games so it doesn't happen so often but when they do he he will come in and say look I think we should probably have won that today and we did a lot of the right things and I'm actually quite happy with it and yeah we did concede a goal and and we lost the game but you know we had more of the chances we were the better team and I think in those circumstances he goes away and thinks to himself I don't need to change an awful lot of this I think there is a discussion to be had about the goalkeeper and it's obviously ongoing at the moment. He seems very supportive of Casilla, but you can see definite problems there in, in 
the technical side of his game, but also his kind of kind of confidence and um, and assurance. There is an argument for getting Pavade in, although would he have done any more with the the various options that the you know the opportunities out wide than Harrison and and Costa? Who knows? Because it felt like one of those days where everything into the box was was just hitting a, a Wigan defender. And beyond that, there, you know, if, if Augustine is not there to be to be chosen, there simply aren't an awful lot of options. There's still no sign of of Forshaw at this stage. So the midfield is as it is. He has Tyler Roberts, who he brought on at the weekend. He has Jamie Shackleton, but then again, those are players who have, have struggled for fitness through the season so are not you know are not going to be 100% sharp and they're not they don't feel like they don't feel like sure things they don't feel like decisive changes and while I see the argument for freshening things up if we take Augustine out of the equation I'm not really sure how you mm. do it uh, we had a question from Dan actually but if you do want to get in touch the squareball.net forward slash WhatsApp, and then we'll direct you to uh, to our little WhatsApp account. Uh, fill in the number for you and everything. And Dan texted just to ask, do you think maybe it was a lack of intensity, like speed in our build-up play against Wigan that let us down, which is why we hit so many uh, first men, you know, the, the crosses were all getting cut out, versus the second half against Millwall, where there was a lot more intensity. Do you think maybe Bielsa's more intense performance today in the press conference, because he likes to lead from the front and have his players replicate what he does, do you think that intensity is maybe a demand for more intensity from the players? I don't know, we we got that before QPR as well, didn't we? It was similar sort of tone and, and pretty you know, pretty robust in, in a lot of his, his answers and it didn't go particularly well down there. I did think there was a difference between Wigan and Millwall in that Wigan to me and we were sat in the in the gantry. Bing Ding, there you go. Um, and we said that Against Millwall, we said if Leeds play like this for forty-five minutes in the second half, then there's no way Millwall will be able to sustain this. They they were just all over the place. They were making errors. They were panicking. And and the point Dan made, which was a good one, was that it all depends on whether Leeds can play like this for forty-five minutes as well, which they did, and they were all over them. And Millwall cracked on Saturday. We were kind of saying it never looked as if Wigan were were losing the nerve at all. The shape was excellent. The discipline was excellent. They defended really well. And there were, you know, there were moments where they got a bit lucky and the moments where they lost Bamford and, and whatever else and, and might have conceded. But you didn't feel as if the intensity and the pace of the performance was overwhelming them in the way that it overwhelmed Millwall. And I do think Millwall were a bit naive in trying to carry on playing and playing out from the back when you know, Leeds were clearly on top of them and, and all over them. But it was different on Saturday. You didn't feel the goal coming at all. There wasn't a stage at which you thought Wigan have gone here and, and are not going to be able to to hold out. And I mean, the intensity and the, the, the pace of the performances will, will be so crucial away at Forest and probably even more so away at Brentford where, you know, it, it really will be fun and games down there. I mean, to return to what Kieran said, four points, is that the sort of return we re- ideally need to get from these if we're going to sustain this and stay up there? I think so, and absolutely come out of these two games still in, in the top two. I, I think for as long as Leeds are in the top two, and I, I always think back to the, the 9 10 season when they went out, they got up from League One, and despite the fact it got very, very nervous and you know very dicey in the second half of the season, they never let second place go. They were always there, and, and there was never a point at which and this happened you know, over the Easter weekend last season, they were suddenly asked to claw back two or three point deficit and weren't able to do it. I think for as long as they hold a, a top two place, they'll feel as if they still have a, a hand on, on automatic promotion. The concern would be if they do get dragged back into the pack, how much does the pressure increase again? What is the mood like around Leeds and, and around the ground? And, and actually, do they have the stomach to, to dig themselves out of that? And it feels like we're asking those as questions rather than being able to give a definitive 
answer to it almost because I mean I, I'm going to turn around to you and ask you now what do you think they'll do and I don't think we can ever answer no, with any confidence can we I've no idea from from this point if they did go up automatically I wouldn't be surprised because I do think they are that good I think when they play well they're, they're as good as anybody and probably the best side in the division but all of us watched the way it get dropped a bit last season the way you know in those those last four games they went from looking like they looking like they they pretty much had it in the bag against Sheffield Wednesday to suddenly losing it completely against Wigan and, and never recovering and you know the potential is there for, for that to happen again so we're in that kind of very questionable uncertain period where nobody nobody knows and and you know, if, if you were to say to me that Leeds aren't going to finish top two I'd find it very difficult to tell you at this stage who is going to finish top two because West Brom are not ticking over particularly well your teams like Forest and Brentford are good but are, you can be can be up and down and I still can't decide whether Fulham despite having the best squad have got a manager who's who's going to get them there so it is, it's pretty much wide open Do you think they'll do anything out of these two games? If you asked me to put my mortgage on anything at Brentford I would you know history tells you go for a home win I mean they they the way they play against Leeds and the surroundings of Griffin Park just never seem to be good no matter who the manager is and who, whichever players are in the team or whichever season it, it always seems to be a problem at, at Brentford I think Forrest is the one and particularly because it comes first that they've really got to make the most of and have, have got to play well and I think actually if they went to Forrest and, and won they could probably cope with the, the sort of shocking record at Brentford carrying on. I don't think it would be too much of a problem and I think you would look at that as a game that you'd love to win but realistically it was always going to be difficult and potentially going to end with, with nothing. So I would like to think so. If they don't, then they'll be, they'll be in trouble. Sounds like you've got a very jolly nice life with the Athletic now, Phil. Jetting off to uh, Poland for a two-day city break. It was cold. I will say that. <laughs> oh, um, my heart bleeds. Yeah, for, yeah. Bleeds no, for I you. can, I can see the the sympathy, sympathy all round. Um, it was a fun trip actually. I'd, I'd been in touch with um, Cleek's parents before Christmas and said to them that I'd like to go out to do a proper backgrounder on him and to find out a bit about, you know, about him as a kid and and how he how he came through. And they're always fun pieces to do because there isn't a, a footballer anywhere who made it just because they did and there isn't a footballer who walked into Leeds United because that's how it was always going to be everybody's always gone through some form of process and, and education and it's the, the bits and pieces that you had no idea about that always that always interest you most I mean I had no idea for example that Cleek's grandfather coached Poland swimmers at the 76 Olympic Games in, in Montreal and that his father was a, his grandfather was a Polish swimming champion and the, the swimming pool in his local town is named after him and um, and, and that Generally speaking, he's there's huge sport and pedigree in in his family. His his father was a professional footballer in Poland and, and coached Cleek um, in his in his youngest years. And his sister was a very good swimmer. She's married to one of the best volleyball players in Poland. So good genes, you know, good genes. What what was surprising was to hear that when he was young, he was a very small kid. Cleek, he wasn't physical and he didn't have much stature. And it did tend to count against him in Poland. A lot of coaches didn't like the fact that he couldn't compete. Physically, I met an old coach, um, Oris Lenicek, who is 77 and is, is considered to be one of the best Polish coaches. You know, uh, kind of Bielsa-esque in the, the length of time he's been around the game and in the way he looks. You know, he's, he's kind of got old demeanour and, and thinning hair and everything else. A very intelligent guy. And he talks about Cleek being one of these players who would never foul anybody but would never be fouled because he always kept himself out of trouble. But then you, you start to discover little bits that give you some insight into the way Cleek is now, which is that 
when he was young and when he played and, and when he got games, because there's a lot of coaches who wouldn't use him because of his, his small stature, he would never pass the ball. He was better than most of the other players. So he'd always keep the ball. He'd always attack with it. He would. He used to hog it in the way that, that kids can do. And the first coach, Martin Gedlick, who worked with him at Krakowia in their, their youth team setup, was saying that he went to a, a tournament, um, Polish National Championships clique, and was pretty much player of the tournament. You know, he stood out above everybody else. But an official from the Polish FA said to him, you'll never make it as a footballer because you're too selfish, you've got too much ego and you're not a team player. And actually, the guys who coached him at Krakowia were saying there was an element of truth in that and that was how it used to It used to be all about clique and the ball. And they say, they watch him now and the way he plays, it's all about the team. Uh, and you, you can't really deny that with Cleek, the way he plays for Leeds. If if anything, he's and, and Bielsa said this about him, he's a player who doesn't carry the ball, doesn't hog the ball. He, he is all about short passes, moving, you know, trying to find angles and, and trying to get into into triangles and squares where you can open up the, the opposition. And, and he obviously has changed a, an awful lot. But back then, yeah, the general feeling of him was that he was a, a slightly egotistical kid who, who kind of needed to, um, to learn about other players round about him. That's interesting, that, isn't it? Um, in terms of the character, Moscow, you said you kind of enjoy the, the weird aspect on our podcast earlier on this week. The, the weird aspect about our squad members and Click is, is full of that kind of weirdness in a nice way. He's remarkably self-assured. I think that's where his ego has kind of been channeled into. When you look at the, the things he's done what was actually termed in your article as shithousing. I'm glad that got in there. Yeah, um, I couldn't think of another way to describe it, really. <laughs> there was no need for that. Nobody, <laughs> Sorry, that nobody mentioned the gantry this time. And I think you, was it his, um, his mum who was acting out the things that he's done? That's right. So I said to her, on Monday night, they had me around for dinner, which was, was very kind of them. And they were filling me in about, you know, the various things that they do. So when they sit and they watch Leeds, they play this drinking game where <laughs> they have to drink every time a goal goes in, which was fine until you started getting Cardiff 3 all and then Birmingham 5-4 and everything else. And she was saying when Cleek phones up, she says to me, you need to stop this, otherwise your father's going to become an, an alcoholic. But yeah, I was talking to her about, you know, the, the shit housing and the, the sort of reputation Cleek has for that and she was pretty much able to run me through all the different incidents so you know the Spygate goggles and the water down Joe Williams back that started that big brawl against Bolton and the um, the finger to the lips against Hull City and, and all that very very aware of it all yeah. so those two the, the one especially pouring water down Joe Williams' back when you watch that when he the brawl had already kind of was was kicking off and he, he basically was the the catalyst to make it kick off properly but to have that confidence because I, I wouldn't do something like that because I would assume they're going to turn around and smack me. And not just him, but all the other, like, 10 Bolton people who were around. But not a care in the world. It was one of the most relaxed gestures you, you could ever see. Same with just the, the shushing of Hall's bench. It wasn't, uh, like, throwing his boots down or, or getting in somebody's face, going chest to chest or the forehead to forehead thing like you see in... in Champions League matches where it's who headbutts who first to see who's going to get the red card. None of that. It was just a quite... It's, it's just, a mischief, isn't you it? You just shut up. Well, it's just, it's kind of, it's a more confident yeah. thing because that, when two players are sort of head-to-head like that, you know neither of them really want to be doing it. They're just a bit frightened of, they don't want to look like the one that's backing down. Yeah. Whereas Click's just doing something that's kind of, isn't part of that usual language of football's kind of bravado. He's just, I mean, who pours water down somebody's <laughs> neck in the middle of a scrap? It's just, it's just not the done thing. But, it isn't no. to have the confidence to kind of go off scripts in those those moments says something about him as a as a person as a, takes him out of that kind of robotic just 
footballers doing football handbags things. It's he's almost he's like really creative. Like the bravado of his youth when he wouldn't give the ball back to other people and he'd just run with it. It's like he's realised he needs to adapt that bit of his game, but he still kind of wants... He still kind of wants the to, to be in the centre of it and he's doing it in his own way. Yeah. I yeah. keep coming back to it. He said, uh, I'm not sure who the interview was with, but the quotes came out from him from a couple of weeks ago that I keep using where he said, uh, um, he says, there's a lot of pressure because every fan, every citizen of Leeds wants to go up to the Premier League, but we are calm. We know what we have to do and we did our homework from last season. Everything is positive. No one is angry. No one is screaming. And I thought, that's just a wonderful way of putting it. Say, we're coming to work every day. Nobody is screaming. He's probably actually as calm and, and as, you know, as calculated as, as anybody. I mean, I didn't, this didn't get into the piece, but I, I was chatting to his parents about, they, they sort of said to me at one point, they said, you can always tell when he's got a yellow card coming. They said, you get to a point where you think, <laughs> this is, you know, this is the point at which he's going to get booked because he's either had too many fouls before or he's done something and you think, right, okay, you know, you, you cross the line there. It is a naughty kid, isn't it? Yeah, very, very yeah, much yeah. so. Um, but I said to them, the thing is, he never gets sent off. He never ends up with a, with a red card. And his mum said that's because he's very clever. That's what I mean. He's he knows, what, he knows yeah. that the line is, he has to stop yeah. the mischief. So yeah. there, there comes a point at which he realises that if he that if he carries on, he is going to get sent off and, and there'll be, be consequences for that. So he can kind of regulate himself. He can regulate the shithousing to the point where he gets booked. But then after that, it's a case of, right, okay, keep your nose clean for, I've had, I've had for my as, fun. Long, as long That's as you That's really have interesting. To. And I, I mean, I met two of his head teachers and one of them said he was a massively self-disciplined guy. So when he went away to, there's like a, an academy in Krakow, SMS Academy, which is where the... So youth team, play. Poland's, Poland's different to England. A lot of the schools run as sort of sports academies. So, for example, when Cleek was 10, 11, 12, he used to do 20 hours of sport a week um, in school, swimming and, and football. And you go to these schools and it's just wall to wall with trophies and so on that have been won by the, the various students. So he went to this SMS Academy in Krakow, which housed the equivalent of your youth team players at Leeds for Vizsla, Krakow and also Krakowia, the two two opposing clubs. And rather than being based in, you know, like the Thorpe Arch Academy, they, they went to school and they're educated there and, and they did all their, their training and everything else. And his old head teacher spoke about the fact that a lot of the kids who went there were away from home for the first time. So literally just started going out into town, going out looking for girls, this, that and the other, and not really paying much attention to the to the work. And he said, you know, Cleet was one of the few that was able to, or, or one of the kind of select group that was able to keep his attention on what needed to be done. And he said, that's how I knew he was going to be, he was going to be good and he was probably going to be a professional because he was able not to be distracted by everything else in a way that lots of his, lots of his friends want. Should say, um, point you in the direction of the article on The Athletic. If you go to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod, 40% off your subscription there, you'll find Phil's article about Click, which is fascinating, by the way. Why, Phil, do you think he didn't, um, he didn't make it under Thomas Christensen? What happened there? What was the breakdown there? To be quite honest, his parents were a bit kind of nonplussed about that, and they were they were very open about everything. And I think if if they'd known the reasons behind that, they'd have said quite openly. I mean, they they compared it to his time at Wolfsburg, where, which was not a happy time for him, and he was there with Felix Magat, who you know it's not hard to find stories or, or to find players and other people who don't have a lot of time for him, and and found him to be extremely difficult. But they said Clay could never get a game, he could never get never get a chance. Magat took him to a game at Dortmund once and, and Cleek thought, right, this is the one, you know, I'm going to be in the squad. And then in the end, he wasn't in the 18 and he had to watch from the stands. And Magat said to him afterwards and genuinely seriously said to him, that was your reward for working really hard and training. You got to come to the game and watch us. And Cleek 
said, well, you know, that's... I mean, when I asked his dad about that, his dad just shrugged and said, I don't even know what that means. Cleek has always reckoned that he had the wrong boots on at Cardiff. He slipped in the wet, that 3-1 defeat down there. Cardiff opened the scoring. And that after that, Christensen never gave him a look in and, and never gave him a chance. I think it's probably slightly more to it than that. And obviously you'll remember the tweet that Cleek sent out just before Christmas and just he went back to Holland when he wasn't in the squad despite there being various injuries and Christensen being short of players. And the long and the short of it seemed to be that Christensen just did not rate him and didn't see how he how he was supposed to fit. But Cleek's mum said that when he went, he said to Victor Otter, I'll definitely be back. So I'll definitely be back here and I intend to play here. And it has to be said that anybody who is out of the picture and comes back and is not in Bielsa's main squad at the start of pre-season and somehow finds themselves being ever-present 78 games later has done something pretty impressive. He's certainly put the work in then by the sounds of it. I mean, Michael, what do you think he brings to Leeds from a fan's perspective? He brings control in midfield is the main thing he brings on the pitch as well as the, the more amusing stuff which we which we've grown to love from him. I feel like going back, it was almost like a different player when he was first here. He came in under Bielsa and he scored in that first game and it was almost, to use the old cliche, it was like a new signing for us. We'd forgotten what it was like and he, he seemed different as well. He was more attacking, he was more attack-minded under Bielsa. From what I remember of him from his very few starts that we saw under under Christensen, he was a defense, more of a defensive player. He just seemed to sit in midfield, whereas as soon as Bielsa came in, he turned into this player who was bursting into the box and scoring goals and just completely transformed. We spoke a while ago about him as being the greatest sort of back from the dead story at Leeds Leeds have ever had because he was he was gone as far as mm-hmm. I think you you tweeted Phil. He's no, probably un- never un- see him again. Unlikely to come back from another this. another hot Phil Hayter. <laughs> yeah. And unless J. Roy Grock can, you know, can come back and and maybe turn himself into Tony Yaboa, it's uh, it does seem unlikely that, that anyone will anyone will ever do it again. What surprised me actually was that he's not very popular in Poland, Cleet. He's dead proud of Poland and his roots and everything else. He still donates money and boots to the, the first club he was at, Tarnovia Tarno, in the city where where his parents still live. And he's got a tattoo on his right arm is of the, the Krakow skyline and, and everything else. So, you know, he's, he's a very proud Pole. But there seems to be a, a section of the press over there who don't think he's good enough for the national team and... and question the coach over there constantly about why he's involved and why he plays because he, he doesn't they don't think he's he's up to it he, he is definitely I, I haven't seen the relevant quotes but he's definitely spoken his mind from time to time about people in the uh, the Poland football setup about the supporters who follow them that haven't gone down well and, and have, have probably not helped but um, when I when I sort of asked Lenny Czech about it and he you know I said he's this, this 77 year old coach who's been around the block many many times and has coached virtually every side of, of note in, in Poland I asked him why he wasn't playing more he kind of said a bit cryptically look when I look at the the various coaches that Poland have had I have an opinion on this but I don't want to give it publicly which I think was his way of saying he, he should have played more and he should have been involved more Do you think maybe there are parallels with Pontus Janssen in that in Leeds he found a home that kind of thing and why do you think that is? Yeah I think so although Janssen has obviously done pretty well on the, the international scene with, with um, Sweden as well they, they've kind of embraced him more I think than than they have Cleek it'd be easy to make comparisons between them because they, they're both they're both kind of eccentric. They're both kind of big personalities and big characters. But I do think, despite you know what was said about Cleek in, in in his early years and the you know the, the kind of dominance of possession and the kind of refusal to um, pass it, he is far more of a collectively minded footballer than Jansen. I think I don't ever sense with Cleek that it's ever really about him or ever made to be about him. I don't even think that the incidents you know the 
Spygate stuff and the, the water down the back. I don't think he's trying to draw attention to himself at all. I just think he's having a bit of fun and, and you know, is is kind of making making a bit more of a spectacle that of of football than than it would otherwise be. And I think he's just in you know, in the in the heat of the moment, but not seeking attention and, and not, not looking for attention at all. And I think when push comes to shove, Cleek is far more of a Bielsa player than, than Jansen ever was, which is not to say Jansen was not a very good player. But I think with Cleek, he can play 78 games back to back and play forever because Bielsa never has to worry about him whereas with Janssen I think there was always a, a bigger question mark there One of the things we've spoken about in on our podcast uh, in the last week or so about reformed footballers and you think about Augustin and the path that he's likely to take and again something that Bielsa's touched on today in his presser about if he was at his you know, optimum condition we'd have no chance but maybe he's a little bit subpar which is why Leeds can be in the market for him and you look at Janssen you look at Cleek in that situation and you're hoping for the same from Augustine, I guess. Almost a, a sense of, well, you said the, the, the Lazarus story coming back from the dead kind of thing. Yeah, I think Cleek is probably a, a far cleverer signing than somebody like Augustine who does have a profile and so on. I mean, I can't pretend that when Cleek came in, I really knew anything about him at all. I certainly heard of Augustine and I knew about the transfer to Leipzig, um, the, the amount of money it had cost and the fact that he was he was well thought of. But with Cleek, it was one of those, and, and this happened quite a lot in that summer where you were kind of edging towards Wikipedia while trying to pretend that actually you didn't know what you were you were talking Don't, about. You'll, but, you'll, you'll bring down the curtain, the veneer on yeah, this, journalism. This is it. You're sitting going, yeah, this guy did very well for him as well, where he won, won the Dutch Cup quickly tapping, <laughs> tapping all this in. But he has turned out, I mean, he's won 1.5 million from 20 and that is very, very good, good money for him. What do we do if he gets injured? Panic. I mean, because the, there isn't anybody left, is there? I mean, who on earth plays in that role if if he if he does get injured? But I mean, it just doesn't feel like he. He, do, he doesn't. Do you know feel what? Like do you know it, what? No. I'm not, not going to say this. I'm not going to say this. But um, you know what? I, I was about to. to I was say. no. I was thinking exactly the same thing that you're about to say and then take back. Never looks. It never looks. <laughs> never looks like it's it's kind of coming. But the last night that I was in Tarno, he, he's bought. Um, he's, he opened a gym in in Tarno with a friend of his who's a big sort of fitness fitness enthusiast. And when we went in. His, his mum had said to me it won't be like your gyms in the UK because there, there are two treadmills and there's one rowing machine but they don't get used much and that's just not what it's about and I thought okay right fair enough so we went in and it was packed full of huge climbing ropes and apparatus that was like monkey bars you know big bright yellow monkey bars and on the walls on the wall there was this huge slogan saying people come in and, and ask where are the machines and I tell them we are the machines and you thought well that's quite a nice sound bite and then I watched these guys these men and women doing the and they're training for competitions they, they, they're they an actual team it's kind of like ninja warrior team and they go and they compete on various climbing frames and everything else and I have no idea how it works and how it's judged and who scores what points and, and, and what you win at the end of it but the the strength and the fitness of what just looked like regular people off the, the streets of Tarnow was completely ridiculous I mean I just hid on the balcony looking ridiculously weak and you know <laughs> um, hiding under my coat pretending I had massive massive biceps but I did think um, it was kind of well, it was kind of the epitome of Cleek just these guys who could go back and forward on these monkey bars endlessly just endless amounts of, of energy it's worth a look if you ever happen to be in Tarno which you probably never will it's worth, <laughs> worth sticking your head in less a gym more of a room oh, like yeah, <laughs> more of a room and it looks like it looks like torture but they did all seem to be enjoying it one of the other themes that's been running through things this week, Phil, is Bamford's form, because you can't look at the Augustan situation without having a look at what, what Bamford's been doing. Uh, and we've got a question then from Joe. 
Hi guys, do you think Bamford gets into any of the promotion-chasing teams of the last three seasons? Obviously last year we had Norwich and Pukki, uh, Sheffield United had McGoldrick and Sharp, Villa had Abraham, even the season before that with Wolves, Cardiff and Fulham. I don't believe he gets into any of these teams, possibly even the year before with Newcastle and Brighton and Huddersfield. I don't know why we should settle for a striker that wouldn't get into any of those teams of the last three years. My question is, would any of those teams have Bamford in their team? Quite a pointed question, that one, Phil. It is a pointed question. It's difficult to say yes, they would, when you start going through the players that they've had and you start totting up the number of goals that Billy Sharp scored and, and Pookie scored and you know mentioned Brighton, who, who did a very good deal when it mattered for Glenn Murray. Newcastle, who had Dwight Gale, you know, oh. who... who the legend who just scores and scores and scores <laughs> when his when his hamstrings hamstrings allow. I mean, I even wonder this season when you start going through the division, how many of the sides he would get into roundabout leads because you've got Graben at Forest, you've got Mitrovic at, at Fulham, you've got Brentford who play in a way which is so reliant on pace and slick interplay. It's, it's a different, it, although it's as attacking as Bielsa likes to be, it's attacking in a in a kind of very very different way. But then again, part of me wonders and. and and I know people laugh at this, but how many of those strikers would have got into Bielsa's team because of the way they play? Would Dwight Gale's body have held up to this style? And it's it's pointless saying, yeah, but Dwight Gale gets in the six-yard box and scores goals because that is just not the way Bielsa wants his, his forward to, to operate. I mean, somebody like Mitrovic, I think, would be 100% tailor-made for, for this Bielsa team, especially in the right, you know, in, in Bielsa shape, Bielsa condition, you know, would be would be perfect hence why he costs as much money as he does and hence why Fulham threw threw as much cash at it but I think I think you've got to be careful not to denigrate Bamford too much in the sense that the teams that went up did not go up with mediocre strikers you know they went up with strikers who did score a hell of a lot of goals and you know some would think well then and perhaps lies the problem for Bielsa but would Dwight Gale have got in ahead of Pukki last season Probably not. Would would Chris Wilder have taken Pookie over Chris uh, over Billy Sharp? You wouldn't have taken Bamford. <laughs> no, no, I think that's <laughs> fair to say, wasn't it? No, I think that's that's fair to say. In a lot of ways, there were players who fitted the specific teams that that they were in. But I see why the question is being asked, and I still, you know, I still think this is going to dominate the what's left of the season, the the Bamford issue, and and it's not a discussion point that's going to go away until or if and when he hits her on a form that kind of silences everybody. Is the issue not maybe related to squad depth as much as Bamford himself? Because he's carrying the entire strike force or the, the pressures of the strike force on his shoulders. Maybe, you know, if you've got other players you can rotate in and not just, you know, a, a young player from Arsenal who we haven't played enough and he's gone back and now a player who are waiting to get up to speed. If there are people to take the pressure off him, is that not really the root of this problem? That, that works if you've got a coach who rotates, but Bielsa just doesn't rotate. So even if you loaded up the squad with Pookie and Gale and, and others, you'd probably still find that it was Bamford who was starting most games. And this is what we said earlier about Augustine. You know, is it going to be the case in two months' time that actually Augustine has had six, seven, eight substitute appearances but hasn't started a game in the way that, that Nicketia didn't? Because it is, it is Bamford for Bielsa. I, I think... 
you know, the, people talk about how last season Sheffield United went and they did Hogan and they did Medine in January and they made sure that they had a bundle of strikers up front because Wilder was somebody who would rotate and would mix it up a bit and would, would use players and, and was also very conscious of what happens if players get suspended or, or injured and aren't available. Bielsa's just got a completely different mindset and th- there's an argument to say that even having two strikers, Bamford and, and Augustine, you know, as, as kind of like experienced, proven players isn't really enough in the championship but it would be absolutely pointless having a third because if they're available and, and ready then you you know 100% that a third striker won't get a look in I mean in terms of Bamford's do you think he's the man to, to fire us up? It feels questionable I think he is he is a good striker for for Bielsa's team and I mean Moscow was saying on a, a previous podcast that you did that Andy Hughes was at a recent game and I was talking about so much of what Bamford does well and, and actually if Bamford's conversion rate and if his finishing was was that much sharper you'd you'd have a very very good centre forward there that I don't think anybody would be asking questions about and and it does come down to the the finishing in a team who create a lot of chances and don't score anywhere near as much goal as many goals as they should Bamford stands out as being part of the part of the problem we're going to answer that question in May aren't we I'm still to be convinced I'd still think that the lack of goals is a problem uh, and is a concern and you would like to think Augustine is is going to help to solve that but how much is he going to play well fingers crossed more than not at all I mean do you think he's maybe Augustine going to offer us a different way to play as well maybe something a bit more dynamic where we can attack quicker and put that ball in behind yeah I mean Nketi did a bit of that you know the the counter-attacking with and Ketty and the team was far more dangerous than it was with Bamford and I'm thinking of the goal of, you know his first goal against Brentford which was very very swift halfway line to goal line and, and Nketty had tapping in from, from four yards out in the space of about four or five seconds uh, and you know Augustine is is pretty quick um, he is pretty mobile I think could could play like that as well but I don't think Bielsa is going to adapt his style of play because Augustine is in the team I think on the contrary Augustine will be required to learn to play as Bamford does because that's what Bielsa, Bielsa wants not the other way around the fact that they've signed Augustine doesn't mean that Bielsa will adapt to accommodate him Augustine has got to adapt to accommodate Bielsa's tactics because you were at Sheffield Wednesday Michael as we mentioned earlier on and what was Augustine like there as a striker because was he not asking for balls through he did seem to be I mean the whole pattern of play was very different because it was I'm used to seeing us dominate possession and have loads of loads of the ball loads of crosses going into the box loads of cutbacks and it wasn't like that in the Sheffield Wednesday game it was it felt a bit more like watching a normal team the only thing was that we still couldn't do corners and <laughs> we got caught playing out from the back a few times but that was the the attacking side of the play didn't seem anything like as as fluent as we're used to seeing. So it, it was hard to judge him on it because unlike Bamford, where you can generally get to the end of the game and say he had four decent chances to, to put the ball in the net, Augustine had one and it wasn't even really a very good chance. It was a, it was a through ball from a difficult angle, which he, he took the shot on early and it was a it was a reasonable chance, but he, he didn't have any other, any other opportunities to score really. So moving on from the Bamford question, but I guess this one flows from it as well about the way that fans are reacting and social media and, and the club, I guess, being, uh, being a little bit sensitive to it all uh, at the minute. We heard from Matt. I know you've mentioned in the past that you yourself have learned not to take Twitter too seriously and at its best, it can obviously be a fun place. However, in light of recent events, do you think keyboard warriors, abuse on social media from certain sections of supporters really can have a detrimental effect on players, players' morale and ultimately match day? Uh, And do you think it takes a certain type of player or person to deal with this? Does it affect them then? How do the players 
take this sort of stuff? Are they really attuned to it or not? It will do. It will affect some more than others. But I think I always feel with Twitter that the more you involve yourself on it and the more the more of a profile you give yourself on it the more exposed you are to to criticism and, and abuse and I know it sounds sad but I wonder sometimes why it is that footballers bother um, that's exactly the conversation we had earlier in the week exactly that just switch it all yeah, off because <laughs> I, I'm yet to ever see anybody message and this is just a, a player plucked from, from there I'm yet to see anybody message Calvin Phillips and say you are pretty average today but you know what average is fine and, and we, we've got a win and, and that's all good it's, it, it tends to be messages to say they're sensational or they are a joke and should be out of the team I mean it's you know I, I don't use this phrase lightly but it is quite quite a sort of bipolar attitude Twitter it, it, it swings so drastically and it swings in, in such short periods and people do find it really difficult or it seems to me they find it difficult to occupy the grey area of just saying that was all right. And to be honest, I don't really have a, an opinion about it this week and I'm mm. not going to bother saying it. Well, anything. there's no drama in, in things being fine, is no, there? No, no, not at all. Not at all. And, and you know, that, that question there was saying that, that I've learned not to take Twitter too seriously, but it's easier for me because I, you know, obviously everybody to some extent has to have some sort of public image and you have to uphold some standards in the way that you tweet and so on. But it's easy for me to joke with people and, and wind people up because I don't have anything like the, the profile that a footballer does. But as a footballer, that's really tricky to do. You, you Once you start getting involved in that and engaging in it and trying to take people on, you know that you're going to appear on the Daily Mail's website in Twitter spat story. So you, you're kind of stuck in this cul-de-sac where you're probably getting criticism, some of which may be fair, but some of which is very, very unfair or you think is unfair. And you can't really go back at it. You know, you just have to sit and take it. And I don't think mentally it can be a particularly good thing. Um, it can't be be particularly productive. And, and as I say, I, I'd love to know what footballers think the benefit of, of social media is. It seems to me that it is there to tickle your ego when things are are going well but it's there to make you feel a hundred times worse than you should when things are going badly is it right that maybe there are sponsorship and commercial reasons for players doing this and that actually a player's profile now forms part of the recruitment process there will be some of that and from time to time you will see tweets that say something like really enjoying these protein packs from such and such company if you need some of these think about you know obviously sponsored tweets and and players will do it with boots and gloves and so on which to be honest is fair enough because that's you know that's the name of the game and and that's where some of the money comes from and these companies um expect some kind of advertisement and promotion um in return but i don't think that sort of stuff is the the issue really i, I think it is it, it comes down to the the sheer weight of enthusiasm that people show you when they think that you're the bee's knees and then the the way in which it turns into kind of outright abuse after one bad game again actually one bad game you know that the, they are out of form at the minute but you know after a game against Wigan that doesn't go well you're kind of prone to it all being a bit over the top Click's quote about nobody here is screaming is really appropriate in the context of of Twitter and so on and you could feel it a bit in uh, what Bielsa was saying in his press conference today about he he can tell that we've the team has lost the confidence of the supporters, but he was absolutely definite that the team has not lost confidence in itself. And Tyler Roberts was saying something this week as well. So that all the players said, we know that we're the best team in the championship. There's no doubts. And it must be confusing apart from dealing with the, the abuse and the swearing and the, the vitriol that comes directly, directly at you. It must be confusing for a, a footballer to be second in the league. And we talk about, you know, we can't score a goal. Well, we're the fourth best uh, attacking team in the championship Can't, nobody can defend the keeper's rubbish we've got the second best defence still in the in the championship the last few games haven't been good but 
from their point of view, and even the last, the, the closing stages of the, the Wigan game and the way that Bielsa was drawing this out, said, well, you could, I can tell by the way the players are playing that they haven't lost confidence in what they're doing. And we, we mentioned it a, a few weeks ago with the QPR game in the second half where you could see the players were running around trying to do everything too fast. And that looked like one where they'd, they were starting to panic a little bit. The end of the Wigan game, even though we didn't get a win, there was no panic. I'm always quite reassured and that the fans don't necessarily, the, as the crowd as an entity don't necessarily like it, but I'm quite reassured. If we're two minutes into stoppage time and we're trailing and Liam Cooper passes back to Kiko Kassir, I'm always pretty reassured in a way because it means they're just sticking to what they're doing. Nobody's, yeah. nobody's panicking. The kitchen sink isn't coming out. Nobody, to use Matt Click's phrases, screaming. They're just sticking with what they're doing. And I was reminded of something from the Do You Want to Win film when I interviewed Mel Sterland and Dylan Kerr and they talked about training with Howard Wilkinson and said Howard Wilkinson used to drill into them if you cross 10 times you'll score if you shoot 10 times you'll score one goal that's what it's and I think Bielsa has the same thing if you put 10 crosses into the box Bamford will score one and he was talking about the Man City game uh, against Tottenham where they had the similar thing where they put 50 crosses into the box and only come up with one or, or no goals and so, so showing that to the players and say this happens to other teams so to have that in, inside you and we'll everything is fine, we're second, we know what we're doing, we're calm, nobody's screaming, we'll go ahead. And then I'll just see what people are saying on Twitter and it's it's as if there's a hurricane at Thorpe Arch and the, the stadium is collapsing into mm. the, a hole in the ground. Quite apart from the, the, the effect of reading people calling your names 24-7, just that gap between what you think you're doing and what people are, are talking about must be quite... That's and, where the difficulty arises. Who will, And you start wondering, what is going on? Because I feel fine. It was the point I made on our podcast earlier in the week, is that the boundaries of accessibility have been blurred now. It used to be you had the club and you'd you'd phone club call on the 0898 number and get a, you know, a kick in from your mum and dad when the phone bill came in at 50p a minute. But that was how you drew information out, out of the club, really, or, or that it was to go you know read the paper the next day. These days we've got such an overload of information and the players are there to be got at and spoken to and told what we think of them, whereas that never used to be the case in the olden days. But it's also the interpretation of results. So a, a defeat to Wigan suddenly becomes, even though you're second in the table, the sky has fallen in. Yeah, but you can't... It's What is that thing we were saying about um, back... back in, I sound like old farts now, but back in the day, you would have gone in the pub and moaned to your mates and that was the extent of where it went. But now, we were saying earlier in the week that Twitter has become the pub conversation, but it's so so elevated because everybody's piling in and everybody needs to have their say. And like you say, you can't cut through by saying, oh, do you know what? Bit disappointing today. And yeah, we're in a really bad run of form, but we might be all right and we are still second. And I think it yeah. might have changed the pub conversation as well because in the pub, I'm sure a defeat to Wigan would not have met with the kind of escalation of where everybody is trying to sound more upset and angry and demonstrative than the, than the next person. So it becomes this kind of, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy at a larger scale that you didn't get in the pub where it would be like, oh, bloody rubbish, yeah, I think they yeah. should drop the keeper. It would be that. Whereas it's, you can't just say, oh, I think they should drop the keeper. It's the keeper should be taken out down the river and drowned. Yeah, and then the, somebody to else to has to say, yeah, no, yeah. actually, yeah. I think we should do this too. And it just builds and builds and builds yeah. in a way that like the Bam- Like the, the Bamford video as well that surfaced this week of his missus, that, I mean, that, doesn't help, does it at all? Well, people, people, who make, uh, don't, don't people who make, make these videos way. of Leeds United players. They were completely different circumstances. <laughs> I was trying to protect young yes, Bailey and he didn't on, appreciate it. On. Yeah, I mean, it, it is pointless because everybody knows he's missing these chances. So it's not as if you'd come into people and saying, hey, by the way, have you, know, have you noticed this with, <laughs> with Bamford? I mean, I heard um, David Baddiel on Five Live about week, two weeks ago, um, and a totally different subject. You know, he's talking about things like anti-Semitism and, and so on. But he said... Social media has kind of bred this attitude where 
in order to be heard, you now have to have very, very extreme opinions, and that applies to everything. And the more extreme your opinion, the more people are to latch onto it and to either agree with it or to call you an idiot, but still to retweet it and to call you an idiot in the process, thereby spreading it and giving you giving you more attention. And and that's the that's kind of the way that that you go for it. I think the perception of Wigan on Saturday is made different by the fact that it hasn't been great for a little while now and. You know, every every poor result or every poor poor performance, whichever it is, starts to feel like another one building on top of others that have gone before. And you you, you sense a, a team who are losing all that impetus they had when they were winning seven on the bounce before Christmas. Not but, that in this league that run was ever going to you know continue in, indefinitely. But it was but, only four days since we'd won a game. You see, this is the point. Although I I think this it is fair to say as well that you kind of go from that game against Millwall and the the kind of intensity and brilliance of the second half to Wigan where in periods it did feel flat again it did feel flat and it didn't feel like there was this the this same kind of injection of, of confidence that they'd all they'd all had in, in the second half and and it is you know it is a difficult period this at the moment and I go back to why I always say that it feels more difficult at Leeds because of what's been going on for 15 years it isn't just a case of fighting with the, the fixture list as it is at the moment it's that that creeping doubt about are we about to get disappointed and I say we you know talking for the fan base rather than myself but are we about to get disappointed yet again by a club who for 15 years have been very good at disappointing everybody at almost every turn on to a different question now a bit of a left turn then what about the badge from Dominic are we getting a new badge for next season because the talk was that this year we'd have a centenary badge and then there'd be a completely new design or has that been scrapped or are we waiting upon anything for announcements to Wade um, about that thanks guys he's right the the original plan was after the you know the mess of the bleed salute badge and the way that that all died a death within about six hours of, of being announced remarkable that by the way remarkable anyway it, sorry it go on. was <laughs> I mean in, in, the, in the long list of PR disasters that, that have been at Ellen Road that is that really is close to top of the list certainly in the the post-premier league era anyway so the plan was to have a centenary badge this year which the i mean the plan after the the lead salute badge and after that debacle was to have a centenary badge this year which they do have and it was almost like a you know a buffer year in which everybody could draw breath and say do you know what let's just kick this into the long grass need to just say as well just pause that a second because the centenary badge doesn't make any sense leave the lufc in it it was fine Carry on, sorry. Yeah, no, that's that's probably a, probably a fair point. But that was like that is almost kick the you know the new badge into the long grass, justifiably so because you've got the centenary year, so you can do something different. And then the intention was at the end of the season or um, to come up with a new badge that ideally everybody liked, or ideally ninety nine percent of people didn't hate, and introduce <laughs> that going forward because Radrazani does want a new badge and he does want a rebranding of of the shield crest and, and everything else. I cannot for the life of me imagine that at this stage with pressers like we've had from Bielsa this afternoon, the form as it is, the season on a, a proper knife edge and promotion really up in the air, that anybody at Ellen Road wants to get into the process of trying to find a badge that you know even the majority of people agree is borderline acceptable, if not absolutely amazing. I mean, it just looks like the point of conflict that you can really do without and, mm. and avoid quite easily. And I know they want to do it and it might be that at some point they, they decide they want to, but it just has the potential to be a huge, huge distraction at a, p- a point where they, they don't need one. I think it needs to be said as well that they weren't 
entirely... I mean, I don't want to use the, go as far as to say they were disingenuous, but they suggested that with the Salute badge, they'd done a, a mass consultation, but they didn't, yes. did they? The no. question they asked was, what you know symbolises to you being a Leeds fan? And a lot of people said Leeds Salute, and then they ran with that. And they had a separate question, which was, would you like a new badge? And like most people said, yeah, that would be fine. Yeah, yeah no, the, the two I think, think 10,000 people were surveyed in a survey that did not specifically make it clear that actually your badge is going to be redone yeah. and mm-hmm. things that you say in this survey might dictate what you know what it looks like um, so what st- started out as yeah this was done after co- consultation of the fans quickly turned into well there was consultation but it wasn't specifically about the badge which is one of the, the areas in which it fell down yes. do you like food do you like dogs <laughs> Here, eat this dog. <laughs> I thought you could see this dog food. Um, they, what, that was one of the things that was strange about it. We are going over old ground, but Angus Kinnear ran a, exactly the same, even down to the language that was used, badge process at West Ham, where they said, we surveyed 10,000 people, and they said that these symbols were important to them about West Ham and that they would they would welcome um, a fresh new badge. But what, what happened there under Angus Kinnear's watch that didn't happen at Leeds, which makes me wonder why it didn't happen under his watch at Leeds was they then put four proposals out to the uh, supporters. I don't think any of them met with enthusiasm. So there was, then there was a process where they said, oh, well, oh, well, the fans say they like this from that one and like that from that one. We need it to do this. And they came up with one that then most people were actually, oh, okay, we've been consulted. They've taken on our board, our feedback. Most people don't hate this and they go forward. For some reason, they stopped before they got mm. to that point at Leeds, which makes me think... Um, was ego involved is what I wonder. Well, um, did, did somebody... Rabrizani was massively keen on that lead salute badge and he mm. said quite openly when I went to interview him you know, a short while after, he said, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. I really liked it. So I really liked it and I wanted it to be the, the badge. But unfortunately, the masses piling in saying we're absolutely not having this. And by the way, this, you know, this is our club, meant that it was just totally, totally impossible. Mm. To the credit, they did instantly back down on it. Yes, they, they realised. They didn't go down the whole Tigers route of just digging in and saying, no, no, we've decided this is for the best and we're going to do it despite the fact everybody hates it. You know, the, within within hours, Angus Kinnear was on the radio saying, look... Six hours it was. Let's, it was let's, have, let's have a think about this. Yeah, and um, he was on Radio Leeds at 6pm in the Try evening. Try not same. to say, I told them this would happen. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Well, regardless of what comes out the other side of this is maybe we need the right process as much as anything. And God only knows, we've got Bielsa in charge of the football side of thing and he's all about process, so let's hope it filters up. Yeah, I, I wonder though whether the modern era and particularly the social media era makes an you know, a, a sort of stable and orderly new badge process possible. What would be on it that everybody would agree? Well, unfortunately, is, if you if you leave it to the leave it to the Photoshop wizards, we end up with the smiley badge and the peacock and the white Yorkshire rose all mashed up together with the LUFC script all around the edge. Some terrible designs out there. Terrible. I think I think if you went to any club and took the supporters on mass and said, right, what do you want on the badge? It's slightly different with say Hart and Midlothian, for example, because. It just is a heart and you can design it in slightly different ways but ultimately it's going to be what it is but because Leeds have had how many have they had over the years? Ten? Yeah, loads. Ten different badges with owls on and peacocks on and the smiley badge and now a shield and the Yorkshire Rose how do you decide what's best and I mean, it's it's an open question because no matter what you put out there, somebody's going to go, I don't like that. And it's just about filtering out the noise, isn't it? You've got people aligned with 10 different badges. So you've got so many different groups, like so many different ones. It's all associated with the one you grew up with. And that was why the one thing that the salute badge had going for it was that it was completely new. And I I didn't have a a problem in principle to say a new badge, let's just do something completely new. Problem was, don't make it that. 
that, that should not be not be it. But um, I've been up for I think I said at the time, but for just writing the words Leeds United on a shirt, I think that like that'd look class. But, Forget well, about well, Juventus did the J, didn't they? Which is ironic when you consider Radrazan is a Juventus fan. Yeah. Just the J on the on the chest. Yeah, there's like there the stuff that appeared on the merchandise for the centenary that it had. Um, Eddie Gray and Tony DiRigo modelling it that had yeah. a Juventus-ish type of vibe to the it. LU. Yeah, the yeah. LU on it. Looked pretty bad though. But it? then also <laughs> Radrazani does seem obsessed with having the words Leeds United somewhere. Mm. I mean, so. I, I think probably to draw a line under this one, I'd say if you look at what Man City did with their redesign, that has taken the classic elements of their badge and just modernised it. I think they couldn't go far wrong with that, but good luck to them. Problem was they Absolutely. had one badge. Yeah, that's true. That's true as well. Yeah, good luck to whoever's uh, in charge of this yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. Godspeed. Ones to watch then. Your famous prediction uh, abilities, Phil, please, for the upcoming games. Forest. I think, from a Leeds perspective, I think all eyes will probably be on Casilla this weekend. I mean, they'll be on Augustine as well, but uh, we could probably you do this for the next um, eight weeks of, yeah, let's see what Augustine does this weekend, and then he's either not on the bench or he's Laps. on the bench. That's what Augustine is doing this weekend. Well, I was going to say, we should, we should say he was your one to watch last week. So he that, was, That yeah. went well. That, Anybody that, who was yeah, at Thorpe yeah, on Saturday got a yeah. good look. Yeah, <laughs> um, but at some point he's going to come on and he's going to score goals, isn't he? And we're going to go, that was that was the one. I think, he should have been um, in weeks ago. Yeah. That'll be the narrative. Yeah, yeah. I think all eyes are going to be on Casilla. You know, there is a... There's a definite question mark there at the moment, and I just when I thought about it after the game on on Saturday, and you know the the, the mistake at, at the corner, and if you watch it, it was there. The, the ball was there to be punched. And, and in his defence, I will say that teams in general seem have seemed to have worked out that a good thing to do with Casilla when they're when they've got a corner is to crowd him on the goal line. And if you watch him every time the opposition have a corner, they do try to get at least two players around him so that Leeds have to bring two defenders in and suddenly you've got this crowd in front of him. But you know, it was a very weak punch and there's been a fair amount of that. And and the one thing that occurred to me on Saturday is that by a mile the best performance we've seen from a keeper since kind of mid-December and since the turn of events in the Cardiff game was from Mesley at, at Arsenal. And I don't know whether that's that justifies the claim that he should start or not. I mean, that is a bold you know, bold thing to say. But I think it, it can be the case that Casilla throws in these too often. You know, it cannot just be an indefinite indefinite thing. He needs to find his form again. And at Brentford, it's got to be Janssen, hasn't it? It's got to be Pontus. Yeah, well, we'll see if they are the people or issues who, who do make the headlines this week. I dare say you're probably going to be right on at least one of them, one way or another, Phil. I wouldn't be too confident about that, yeah. <laughs> if you want to catch up with ad-free podcasts, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic and listen through the app. You can get a 40% discount now by using the code LEADSPOD. Thanks for listening to this one. We'll speak to you next week. Hold up. 